Flip, as we record this, we're coming off the heels of Sunday's disappointing 12-7 loss to the Blue Jays. Flip, what's going on with this team right now? It's hard to say other than to say that uh, every aspect of the game right now is failing them. Um, it doesn't mean that can't be turned around. It doesn't mean you can't right the ship. But right now, they're just, they're just playing very poorly. Uh, the pitching, starting pitching isn't there. The bullpen isn't there. The offense isn't there. The urgency isn't there. They're just not, they're just not getting it done. There's no other way to – you can't sugarcoat this. They're not getting it done. And uh, for them to – they've got to wake up, though, because there's, there's, only, there's less than 20 games left. And if they're going to, you know, get to the postseason, uh, even though there's a lot of teams that will be in the postseason, you've got eight right coming from, from the East, so, from the American League. So that, that's a lot of teams. But you know what? For them to have a seat at the dance, for them to have a seat in this tournament – uh, they've got to start winning a few more games, which they haven't been able to do. They're just playing very poorly right now, and nothing nothing seems to be working right now. But it doesn't mean they can't turn it around. So it's still a lot of talent, and they're getting players back. I guess good news, if you want to look at it like glass half full, is that the Yankees have 10 of the remaining 20 games against the Blue Jays, so they kind of control their own destiny. Well, yes, but, but if they get, they're getting their, their rear ends kicked, then destiny is not going to be kind to them. You know, it's it's true. But right now, listen, the, the, the Met loss was horrific. The makeup game against the Mets, they had that lead. They, they couldn't hold it. And then there was losing three or four. I mean, Baltimore is a team that the Yankees have owned. I mean, owned. And and, it, and listen, they, they had to lose sometime. I mean, you're not going to win every game. I mean, that's not realistic, right? The, the streak against the Orioles was, was incredible. But having said that, they just didn't play well. By the way, as a matter of fact, they could have been swept. They, they were really one play away from, one run away from being swept. So, you know, they were fortunate they won the one game that they won. So they're just not playing well. I mean, they're just not pitching, not hitting, they're not base running well. They're not making the plays you need to make. And they're really hurting in the sense of, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the regular everyday players are just being in and out of lineup. There's no continuity. It's, been, it's a real challenge for them right now. And, look, every team has, has a, hits a hot, a hot spell and cold spells. That's the nature of the game. But, again, because it's only 60 games, you really can't afford that, that prolonged cold spell. Look at happened to the Nationals. What happened to them? You know, they're, they're out. I mean, Nationals aren't coming back from where they are. And it just, it just, it's just a matter of, you know, getting enough games. If you have enough talent, you have enough games, you'll get it done. But right now, the Yankees have talent. They just, they're just not getting it done. And uh, the schedule is not kind to them. Before you know it, this, this regular season will be over. So they got to put some Ws up there. They really got, they got to get a sense of urgency back. And they got to start playing. They just have to start playing better fundamental baseball, which they're not doing. When you say they have talent and they're just not getting it done, I think the first person that comes to mind is Gary Sanchez. Uh, Aaron Boone says he's working his tail off, quote, working his tail off. Yankees fans want him to turn it around. Yankees need him to turn it around. But my question to you is, can he turn it around? Yeah, could he turn it around? Of course he could turn it around. I mean, he has there's a lot of talent there. And he's shown in the past, I mean, he's capable of, of, of hitting consistently and, and, you know, making the plays beyond the plate. I mean, he's shown he could do it. The problem is right now that he just hasn't been able to get it done this year. And what, I mean, I don't know what's on his mind. I don't know. I think what he's doing and what, what I see, he's pressing. He's pressing beyond belief. You, every time up, he wants to hit a, you know, a five-run homer. You know, it's not, not going to happen. But he wants to, you know, he just wants to do that every time up. He feels that uh, he's got to make up for lost ground. I mean, if he just relaxed and stopped squeezing the bat because he's creating that bat is becoming sawdust. He's squeezing it so tightly. And that's because there's, you know, he feels the pressure to, to perform. And, you know, he's, he's got a lot of talent. 
And if he just relaxed, I think you let the game come to him. So him pressing so hard, I think he, that might help him. I think quite a bit. Um, you know, he's got a lot. Like I said, he's 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 shown he's a big leaguer and a lot more than that. So then you say, what is the problem? And then you know what? I wish you could I wish there was an answer. But you see, there's a lot of players now experiencing that. He's not alone. You know, it's it, it, teams that that struggle the way the Yankees are struggling right now. It's a collective situation. It isn't one or two players. It's a lot more than that. A lot of guys are struggling. A lot of guys who were successful last year. You know, honestly, the league is now wise to them. The league has you know seen them and scouted them and find, knows their strengths and also knows their weaknesses. They're not they're not giving into their strengths and they're exploiting their weaknesses. That's what teams do. So it's a game of adjustments. So the lot of players need to make adjustments that they quite handily haven't made. So, you know, if they make those adjustments, we should be okay. If they don't make those adjustments, then, you know, this, this season will be, will be gone and then we move on to next year. In recent days, we've seen Boone pick uh, Kratz, pick Higashioka, both over Sanchez in the lineup. Is that the best way to get him out of this slump is just to sit him and have him, I guess maybe he's in the cage taking hacks? I think they're probably working with him on a number of things. And I think what that does will take a lot of the pressure off him right now is to just sit him and let him relax a little bit, try to get him to relax a little bit. And I mean, he's not going to sit the rest of the season. He's, he's sitting a couple of games and he'll, he'll get back in the lineup because at some point Boone has to say, and we'll say, you're our guy behind the plate. So go play, you know, get us into the playoffs, help get us into the playoffs. And that conversation will be held. I'm sure. And that's also, I'm, I'm sure it's already been held where he's been told like he's not going to stay out of the lineup permanently. This is just a way to sort of, till he gets his sort of can get his gears together and figure this out. Uh, it's a respite, if you will, as opposed to a, a permanent, uh, you know, uh, the, you know, a ban, if you will, he's not being banned. He's not from the lineup. He's just struggling and he's struggling. So he's trying to hit his way out of it and play his way out of it, but he hasn't been able to do it. So take a little respite, look at some film, look at some tape, work with the, work with the Yankee hitting coaches who are terrific. And, you know, hopefully some fruit will come from that. I mean, if it doesn't, then, you know, then we move on to next year, like I said, but uh, I think a little break sometimes is in order in, in this case. The good news flip, you know me, I'm a glass half full guy, right? Yeah, you're going to tell me about the Orioles? No, I'm not. Oh, I, <laughs> I could. I could. I bet where I said to you, the Orioles would not make the play. There's no way they make the play. I'll tell you what, they're a lot better than I thought they were. I, what I was going to say is, unfortunately, Gary Sanchez, he is stumbling. But uh, one of the benefits of that is we're getting to know Eric Kratz, who might be my favorite Yankee right now. How great is he? He's, he's apparently, I don't mean I don't know him. That's one of the things that... Uh, you know, uh, we'll ask Meredith Morakovitz about at some point. She was our guest coming up. Uh, you know, he's, he seems to be a really good guy, and he seems to be a nice little presence in the clubhouse. Look, he's a veteran. I mean, I just love the relationship he has with Emmy Garcia. I think that's been that's been awesome. And uh, a veteran, a veteran who's been around like he's been around, and really appreciates, loves being in the big leagues, appreciates it because he's been in and out different teams, minor leagues up and down. He's you know he's sort of been all over the baseball world. But yet, you know, because he's, he is a character, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, he's a, he has character. He has character, he has strength, and he seems to be a really good guy who relaxes everybody around him. So you can't mitigate that presence. That presence is, is uh, worth everything, particularly now when the team is struggling the way it is. Someone who could sort of, you know, sort of maybe lighten the mood a little bit, and uh, it might not be a bad thing right now. Speaking of Meredith, what do you think? Should we get to her? Yeah, she's. Uh, I would love to hear what she's got to say. We've talked about this and a lot more. So let's go to Meredith. MM, let's go, baby. Let's go. Welcome back to Curtain Call, John Filipelli, Kevin Sullivan. 
Our very special guest at this time is Meredith Morakovitz. Meredith has been with Yes for nine years. She's a recipient of six Emmy Awards. She, last year, she won the Synopsis Woman of the Year Award, which goes to the, the top woman in media. That's quite an award, a very prestigious award. And, uh, and she is uh, one of the all-time nice people that I know in the business. So at this time, hello, Meredith, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for saying all that nice stuff, Flip. The check will be there soon. When, when, when does the check get here? Tell me, because you know, um, I got bills. You know what? Happened? mail yet but it's coming okay all right well i'll take you to your word there mm -hmm. um all right so mm -hmm, so why don't we tell everybody a little bit about how you got started tell us how you got started in the business and uh, did you always aspire to get into broadcasting and it, it when and, and if you did obviously how did you get your first break and how'd you get into business well i was pretty lucky because unlike a lot of people that go to college and they don't know what they want to do i had a pretty good handle that i wanted to do broadcasting in some form and i thought that i was gravitating from two sports considering I grew up in a very athletic family. I always played a ton of sports. My brothers did as well. So when I was looking at colleges, I made sure that I had that in mind. And one of the things that I looked for was a TV station. I wanted to make sure the school that I went to had a television station where I could get some hands-on experience. And I really wanted to be near a major city so I'd be able to possibly cover professional sports teams. So those things were on my list. I wound up at LaSalle, long story short. I was a volleyball player, but wound up getting injured. So once I got injured, I really focused my attention on the broadcasting aspect of things. Started doing stuff at LaSalle 56, which has now been rebranded LaSalle TV. Um, and then from there, I basically started calling people and begging for a job or for an internship or for any opportunity. So the first thing I did was actually my sophomore year of college, I called the local cable station, TV2, Service Electric 2 Sports, which was where I grew up, the area where I grew up, and said, hey, do you have anything available? Would there be anything I could do there? And it just so happened that the woman who was doing sidelines for the Patriot League men's and women's basketball doubleheaders had just left and they were looking for someone and they remembered my name from when I played basketball in the Valley for high school and volleyball as well. So they said, if you want the gig, we'll give you the gig. You'll make what, 50 bucks a game or something crazy and show up at this time. So I show up at Lehigh University at the Fieldhouse and they hand me a microphone and say, when the red light goes on, talk. So that was my foray. They did not have an earpiece and an ISB at the time, so I couldn't hear what the announcers were saying. It was literally red light on, have something to say, and then keep it moving. So it was mildly traumatic, but I actually loved it because I was thrown into the fire very, very quickly. There was never a teleprompter. There wasn't much planning, but it really taught you that you needed to think on your feet and be on your feet and be ready to go at all times. And I think a lot of people don't learn that until way later down the line because they're so regimented and they're so coached going into it, uh, that the format is this and follow this. Nope, that's not the way we did it. It was, you know, trial, trial by error. So I, I value that experience. And from there, I continued working with that company for a lot of years where they eventually got the rights for the AA Reading Phillies and eventually got the rights for the AAA Iron Pigs when they moved to Allentown in 2017. So that's my first real foray into baseball, all the while I had started doing a morning show in Philadelphia, which went away when they got their ESPN affiliation for that radio station, but I stayed on as the Phillies reporter. So there's actually a time when I was covering the AA Phillies, AAA Iron Pigs, and the Philadelphia Phillies, which all coincided with the years that they happened to be good, 
seven, eight, and nine. So it kind of worked out well for me timing wise. And I think that led to some additional opportunities. That was an incredible summation of your background. That was absolutely incredible. I must say to you that in all the years I've been doing this, I've never heard a summation quite as interesting as that. The length of it was amazing, Meredith. That went on about 12 minutes. We have to go. Kevin, don't we have to go now? This is coming from Flip Meredith, the guy who's never had a shortage of words. Heavy sarcasm as he was continuing to speak there. Well, what do you want me to say? I mean, it's a lot of years. A lot of years go into getting a solid job in this business. And you said, how did I start? Flip, that's how I started. It is an amazing, it's actually an amazing story. I'll tell you, we get get so many tapes and so many phone calls and uh, uh, emails from people. And uh, one of the things that, I, that we look for, I mean, I know that I look for, is the ability to sort of think on your feet. Uh, you know, prompt teleprompters are, you know, are teleprompters. I mean, sometimes you need them, sometimes you don't. But, it, but what I really look for is the ability to, know, to think on your feet and to get through a situation and to get through it in a way that makes sense. Will you, to be able to tell a story, to be able to get the facts out, to tell a story, and to do it in a way where it's... Um, it's a narrative and you do it in a way where uh, all your thoughts are uh, up front and you are get, saying exactly what you need to say and the stumbles are few and far between. So you look for a solid, you look for a, 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 a baseline presentation, but you really look for is the ability to think on your feet and uh, to do what you do, you have to be able to think on your feet. There's no question about it. Uh, like when you're doing press conferences or post game, you know, interviews with the, with the various players, the manager, you have to be able to think on your feet. You have to have your questions. You also have to be able to, to veer away when you need to veer away and go to another topic. There's no question about it, because I think part of it, especially when you're reporting, is listening to the subject's answers, and they might drop a little hint that makes you say, huh, I didn't realize that was going on, and you need to follow up on that, and I don't think all the time people listen to the answers. They just have their questions, and they go boom, 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 but listening to the answers is such a big part of the gig to be able to veer in a certain direction if the answer kind of dictates that, so... Even last night, for example, we were doing post-game, and it's a little different in 2020. It's all via Zoom. Uh, so it does make it a bit more difficult to read people. But Adam Adovino was talking about the disastrous sixth inning where the Blue Jays wound up putting up 10 runs. And he said throughout the course of an answer, I'm going to look at video. I'm going to see if there's something that I was doing, if my location was more off than I thought it was. It's really weird. Chad Green and I are two pitchers that typically get swings and misses, and neither of us got any swings and, and misses. It's almost like they could have known what was coming. And that was in the length of a very large answer. He listed other factors as to why he could have had trouble as well. But that was kind of a red flag to me. And like, oh, do, were you tipping your pitches? Did you feel like they knew what was coming? And that's something that the Yankees had dealt with against the Rays. There was some chatter about that. Against Baltimore, there was some chatter about that. So it's not the first time we heard that this season, but if Ottavino doesn't drop that little nugget, maybe you don't think, hmm, were they tipping pitches? Did the Blue Jays know what was coming? So little things like that that you pick up as you're speaking to somebody. And, and if, you don't, if you're not listening, you won't pick it up. If, you're, if you are so focused on your next question, then you're not really listening to what is being said. And you'll, you know, you'll, you'll go down a road and you'll miss, you'll miss an opportunity to follow up on a, a nugget that was handed to you. 
it's not only the nugget, it's the ability to follow up. I mean, it's, I mean, you have a challenging job in that respect. Uh, you, you really have to sort of get as much information as you can, and you have a limited amount of time on the air, whether it's in pregame. Postgame is a little bit more expanded because it's, uh, the game is over, and, uh, but still in all, you're trying to get multiple interviews. So, you know, your time is really very precious, and you, everything you do has to be condensed. And, uh, I mean, that's one of the challenges of the job. Yeah, no doubt about it. And especially with pregame, when you have a big news day, and there's so much stuff that you want to kind of check in on and, and touch on throughout the course of the show. And Bob, Jack, and Flash, and Jared Boschnack do such a great job in making sure that everything gets covered. When you're at the ballpark and you're talking to people, you, you want to be the one that's able to disseminate a lot of that information. And sometimes time just doesn't allow for it. You only have five to seven minutes. The show's only 30 minutes long with commercials or 28 minutes long with commercials. So you really have to go through, edit, pick and choose what's the most important, and then trust the rest of the crew is going to be able to get to some of that other information throughout the course of the show. Meredith, you already touched on the Zoom interviews a little bit, um, but I want to go a little bit deeper on that. So, and this might be your answer. When it comes to baseball in 2020, your job is very much different than it was in 2019. What's been the biggest adjustment for you? Is it those Zoom interviews? I would say the personal relationships, while I can still text people on the side and still get information, it is very difficult to have that one-on-one -on -one connection when somebody's sitting behind a computer, they see you on video, but it's not the same as going up to them at their locker and saying, hey, this happened yesterday, what's the deal with this, or what happened here, or three days ago, you did this, can you explain why you did this? You really don't have that opportunity because for the most part, they're all group interviews. The interviews only last so long, you only get a certain amount of questions. So that's probably been the most difficult part, not being able to be there. And you would be surprised how many little things you pick up just being in the clubhouse, just being on the warning track during batting practice. You know, you might see Cashman down there one day. You might see Tim Nairing down there one day. You might see Jim Hendry down there one day. And just speaking to them in casual conversation you'll get a wealth of knowledge and you'll get little nuggets, little bullet points that you can use throughout the course of the week or even thereafter, depending on, on what they say. So that's probably been the most difficult thing. Also the schedule, there's not a definitive schedule where during a regular season, I would know I need to be at the ballpark at this time. The clubhouse is open from 3.20 until 4.05 and then Aaron Boone will speak at 4.05. I grab anyone I need to before then do my one-on-one -on -one for yes or anything I need to do for yes, then get Aaron Boone, and then it's batting practice. This year has been a little bit of a free-for-all in the sense that we never really know who's coming out pregame. We don't ever really know the time. We just know that it won't happen before a time, so it's kind of a guessing game when do we need to get to the ballpark every day, uh, what time will players be talking, who will be talking. Uh, so that's all to be taken into consideration. That's uh, it makes it a little bit more difficult. That's we're a making great it work. That's a great point when you bring up uh, the personal relationships with the players and coaches. Uh, but, you know, you can even take that a step further, maybe, because you're not, I think, you're not around the beat anymore. Meaning, you know, you might be rubbing shoulders with Brian Hoke and Joel Sherman and just stumble upon a conversation. Maybe some, hey, I heard this about Gary Sanchez. Now there's this big gap you have to overcome. How do you do that? Or is it still a learning curve? It's kind of funny because I walked over, so they've set it up quite nicely that Michael has his own booth, David has his own booth, I have my own booth, and then radio has their own booths as well. But then to the left of us is the actual press box where the print media 
typically sits. And I, I haven't ventured over there really. So I haven't seen all my kind of friends, you know, you travel together for how many years you become friends with, with everyone. And I walked over and it was like a whole new experience. I was going down each aisle, like waving to people and, and Hey, what's up? How are you? It felt like the first day of school. It was kind of fun. Um, so that's, that's been a little different. We still text. I still text with people a lot. I mean, texting makes it easy. So even during post games, occasionally I'll text somebody and say, Hey, did you hear that the way I thought I heard that? Yeah. And then sometimes that'll lead to a follow up as well. So it's not the same, but I think you have to realize and acknowledge that everything is different for everyone and it's not easy for anyone. So you try to make the best of a bad situation and you can't let it upset you. You just got to do your job to the best of your ability and hope people understand that the circumstances are not normal. You mentioned before about the relationships uh, and how important relationships are and uh, very important in the business. Also, obviously, very important in life. And uh, you formed a very special relationship with uh, uh, Susan Wallman, did you not? My girl, Suze, where is she? Oh, she got me this. Well, you can't see it because it's not video. She got me this picture from London. Uh, yes, yeah, Susan and I became very close over the years. We are the only two women, for the most part, unless Jean Ackerman is on a trip, that travel with the Yankees. And when you travel for baseball, it's every day. It's a grind. There's times that you're in three cities in a week. And these people become your family. You see them more than your family. And over the years, Susan and I, every now and again, we'd grab lunch or we'd grab coffee or we'd grab dinner. And then I think it was before last year or the end of 2018, she said to me, you do so much stuff on the road. You're always out and about. I need to be more like you. I need to start doing stuff. I just wake up, I go for my walk and I sit in the hotel room, make sure I do stuff next year. I say, are you serious? Yes. So we did a lot of adventures and she had a great time and it's been a lot of fun. And I think the coolest thing is how, you know, fans have really loved it. They've, they've really received it well. They love our dynamic. It's not for show. It's not for the, for Insta story or a camera. We, we truly are good friends and uh, it's fun. We have a blast every time we, we go do something. It's just hours of laughing it seems like every time we go somewhere so what, what do you think is your biggest challenge in the job the biggest challenge in the job um probably trying to find new ways to do things because it does become a bit like groundhog day that's the nature of baseball right. so jared boschnack and i the pregame producer have actually mixed things up more this year on the pregame show than we ever have, which I actually like. There'll be some times when I come out of commercial break, I start the segment and just take the whole segment. There'll be other times where I go back and forth with Bob and Jack or Bob and Flash, whoever happens to be on set for the day. There'll be other times where Bob froze to me. So we've been trying to do a couple things to mix it up a little bit so it doesn't get completely stale. Um, and I'm trying to think of anything else that's difficult about the job. Just trying to get confirmation on stories that you know to be true, to get people on the record to, to confirm it sometimes is difficult too. There's a lot of very good interviews. Your best interview. Who was your best interview and why? Uh, best interview, I would say the most notable interview would definitely be Derek Jeter's final game. He's a guy that you would not see get emotional very often, but I still remember that game and I remember the feeling at Yankee Stadium. 
They're completely out of the playoffs. Steven Robertson was having a great year as the closer. He winds up blowing a save to set up what could be a perfect situation for Derek Jeter. And as it's unfolding, you're thinking, no, this, this can't be happening. Like, this really is not going to happen like that. But when he stepped to the plate, the crowd sounded started to sound like it was a playoff game. And again, they're completely out of it. No hope of postseason play. And then he hits that ball to right field, and the place just absolutely erupts. It's one of the loudest that I've ever heard Yankee Stadium, which is so insane because it's essentially a meaningless game. And then Derek took his time celebrating with his team, uh, going out to shortstop. He hugged his mom and his dad, went through the whole thing, and he looked at me and said, I'm ready. I said, you sure? He's like, I'm ready. And you could tell he was highly emotional. And when we do big interviews on the field, they pump it in to the system so the fans can hear. And that place was electric. But as soon as he said his first word, you could hear a pin drop. People just hanging on every final word from Derek Jeter, which I think was very, very cool to experience. And at the time, I'm taking this all in. I'm not um, completely in disbelief as, as to where I am and what's happening, but you're doing a job. You don't think of it at the time as a huge moment. You're just there doing your post-game interview, doing a job. It wasn't until after the fact, and I looked at my phone and saw the text messages I got from people that I'd been watching it, uh, that I realized, I think, how insane it really was. And then obviously years later, you can kind of look back and, and say, wow, that was a really, really cool moment. But I just remember my second question, I believe you could tell he was just tearing up and he didn't want to lose it. He was trying so hard to keep it together and he kept it together for the most part. And then I think he went on MLB network and lost it a little bit, but what an incredible moment for one of the greatest Yankees to play. I think his nephew became a bigger star than he did. <laughs> that hats <laughs> off thing. I still see the gift. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's out there everywhere. People randomly send it to me at times, too, because he does it right behind. Uh, they were almost sitting almost to the left of home plate a little bit. So he did his little tip of the cap, and I happen to be standing there. I can tell I'm, like, doing the John Sterling with my thing in my ear. I can hear Bill Bowen, our producer, to see what he's saying. And uh, I'm, I'm in that. So people just randomly send it to me, which I get a kick out of. And it popped up on my – I think ESPN posted something about it the other day and I added it to my Insta story and I said something to his sister, Charlie, who's Jalen's mom. And I was like, I cannot believe he was that little. What an adorable, adorable little boy. And now he's like a grown up. <laughs> Not really, but you know, that was, that was a lot of years ago, guys. <laughs> Speaking of grown ups, I have a somewhat serious question about this year's team. Oh boy. Should I love Eric Kratz as much as I do? Uh, yeah. Great? And, and, a wonderful man. He is a lovely man and he cares so much. And I don't know if you were watching the interview a little less than a week ago where he was asked about his influence on Latin American pitchers in particular. And he just broke down in the Zoom room saying, look, I have, I have kids, I'm a father, and I can't imagine going to a country where you don't speak the language, where you're expected to produce. A lot of times people don't understand where they come from. They don't understand the monetary issues they go through in their home country. And I feel like I need to look out for them. He essentially turns into almost a father figure for some of these guys. And he jokes with Davey Garcia, I'm going to play catch with my son. 
which, you know, mathematically is possible, but it's, um, it's, it's actually really cool to see someone care that much about these young guys that at times might be forgotten by others in just how difficult it is for them to assimilate themselves into Major League Baseball. I have, I have uh, two more questions. Uh, in no particular, let's see where I'll go here. I'd like to ask you how you got your job at Yes. I mean, you hired me. Yeah, I know, but I forgot. Uh, <laughs> so it's funny. It's, it's funny. I actually interviewed for the Nets sideline right. job. I remember. Back in 2000 and end of 2009, beginning of 2010, I want to say, would have been for that season. Yes. And the first runner up. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride flip, right? But you were like seven years old then. You were like seven or eight years old. You were just a mere child. I mean, you know. So uh, I had interviewed for the Nets job that year. I had interviewed for the Sixers job that year. And I had interviewed for one other fairly major job that year. And I was first runner up for, um, for all of them. And obviously I was beyond frustrated. You mentioned that I was five to seven years old at the time. I was a little older than that, but I think a lot of people were concerned about how young I was. And while I had experience, there were other people that had had larger market experience um, that I did not have. So I think people were a little hesitant to take a chance on me, a bit of an unknown. So I was passed over for those jobs and I'm like, ugh, I can't do this anymore. I'm working a million hours a week. I'm commuting all over the place. This is getting crazy. What am I doing with my life? And then I wound up going from my jobs in Philadelphia and Allentown to ESPN radio covering the Yankees and the Mets, Michael Kay's station at the time. And I was also working for SNY at the time. So I was doing freelance work for SNY and also doing the ESPN radio stuff. And that's when I ran into you, Flip, in the cafeteria at Shepherd's Place at Yankee Stadium. And you came up to me and said, hey, I don't know if you remember me from the interview. Um, John J. Filippelli, I just wanted to say I, I really enjoyed the interview. I'm sorry you didn't get the job, but I feel like there are bigger things for you in the future. And I think that we're going to meet again. And at the time, I remember thinking, well, that doesn't, that doesn't give me a job or put money in my pocket. I'm no, like a, it gave you hope, though. I'm a struggling though. reporter. I'm a struggling reporter, Flip. But you got hope, um, right? It gave nice. you hope. You always, it was nice. You always say about Very, hope. Meredith, what, not a yeah. strategy. Hope is not a strategy. Hope is not a plan. But you got hope. Um, yeah, it was, it was uh, it, there were nice words, though. They were nice words. I remember it. And then lo and behold, not even a year later, Kim Jones, who had the job before I wound up getting the job, had left. I reached back out to yes. And then the rest is history. I was hired. I was covering the 76ers at the time. I was hired in late March. And I think I flew to Florida like three or four times that week between Sixers, Tampa, and then the start of the season. And I actually, when I started, I still hadn't even seen the, the studio in Stanford. I'd never been to the studio. I'd only been to the New York office. And I didn't even know where I was going to live in New York. Yes, wound up, thankfully, getting me a temporary apartment. I rented a car. They, they started in Tampa, went to Baltimore. I rented a car in Baltimore. I picked up my clothes in <laughs> Philadelphia and moved them into a temporary apartment. And then I was working every day. Uh -huh. So... Like a glamorous really life. It's very glamorous. Yeah. very glamorous. People don't see that side of it, right? But 
hey, it's all a character builder, right? It is. I mean, you know what? People say it's a character builder. I say, you know, with all due respect, I have enough character. I don't need any more character building. Please, please spare me the character building. Uh, all right, at closing, I have, a, I have no more question for you. Uh, if you could tell our audience, and you can because you have the mic, so feel free to, uh, to elaborate here. Uh, if you could tell our audience something about yourself that you would want them to know that they don't know, what would it be? Something that they don't know. I mean, I would say that I'm a big family person. I spend a lot of my time with family and friends. Um, I like to be as interactive with fans, which I think they do know, but I thoroughly enjoy my interaction uh, with fans. But I also like to turn it off every now and again and travel, which is why you find me in Europe a lot in the off season, not this year, but um, that's about it. I'm trying to think of anything interesting that would be super fun for people to know. I'm a member of the Rock Me Wall of Fame. Did you know that clip? No, I didn't. Uh, that's, is that your first Hall of Fame or are there, are there multiple Hall of Fames here? Uh, that's the first one. Hopefully the first of many. First I of many. A, I want to have a career like you one day. Well, you know what? I, 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 my career is easy to emulate. Don't, you you got to go pick a higher, uh, higher role model. Um, Said the Hall of Famer. Said the Hall, Said of, the Famer, Hall of Famer. Famer. HOFer on baseballs, according <laughs> to Brandon have Steiner. Your, uh, have you started your speech preparation yet? You know, I did. And here's what I've written. I'll, I'll read it to you if you have a second. Here it is. Right here it says, thank you. It. <laughs> Nailed it. Well, you know what? Sit down. I can't get any trouble, right? Didn't offend anybody. Didn't leave anyone out. It's Just wait. a long thank you. Just I wait. Like it. <laughs> wait until this speech happens. Uh, I'd pay money to hear what I'm going to say. I really would. <laughs> It'd be interesting. Uh, Kev, closing thoughts? I want to steal a flip question and put my own little spin on it. If you could name one person, past or present, if you could interview that you haven't interviewed, does it have to be in the sports world or no any world? Whoever. I would say MLK Jr. Obviously, there are crazy things that are going on in the world right now with social injustice, and I would love to get his take on what's transpired since he tried to lead the charge and how difficult it was then and how similar it is to potentially what's going on now. I think that would be a wild and eye-opening interview. We've asked similar questions. I think, what is it, Flip, 40 times? And um, that might have been the best answer. I would say of the 40 answers we got, the response we got to 40 other, I would say it's in the top one. So that's, let's that's go the with best. That. That's yeah, the best. That's, that's, that's how that works. That's my top <laughs> one. So there you if go, we're Ruth. going to the sports world, Babe Ruth, because I really want to know if all the stories about the, you know, the beers and hot dogs, and that was his essential diet, and that's how he trained for games. And his exercise program, too, might have been interesting, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure there wasn't one. Like 12 ounce curls. That's right. <laughs> Merith, um, thank you. You're wonderful. Uh, you're excellent at what you do. A good person. You're fun to have uh, uh, on set. And uh, um, yes would not be yes without you. So thank you for all you do. And uh, we'll see you down the road here. Sounds good. And uh, thanks for having me on. And hopefully I'm at yes for a very long time. We'll know soon enough, Meredith. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Meredith. You're the best. You're the best.
Bye bye, MM. Look, just a great conversation with Meredith. She is the best. I think my favorite part really was uh, her going through her interview process with you. What, what kind of light can you shed on that process? None. None. I mean, I, no, I, I don't. You know, I'm trying to remember. It's funny, like the years, sometimes the years all meld together, if you will. And uh, I mean, I, what I remember about Meredith is that we, I remember look, we looked at tapes and uh, we liked, you know, we liked what we saw. She's very young. She's very, very young at the time. Like I said, she must have been 12. But, uh, she's a little older than that, but she was really young. And, uh, you know, we felt that uh, we needed someone who was a little bit more veteran. And that's kind of why we went down the roads that we went down. But, but, uh, but when she was ready, you know, in another year or so, she, she was still, you know, in a spot where uh, we were able to figure something out. And because we never forgot her. She did her, I know she interviewed well. The particulars of I don't remember, but I know that she interviewed very well. And so when we had a spot open, which was about a year later, we, you know, we gave it to her because uh, we thought she was the best in the field. And, and, and time has proven us right. I mean, she's fit in like a you know, hand to glove. She's, uh, she works really, really hard. She's, the players really enjoy her. They really like being around her. You know, she's professional in every, every sense of the word. The crew loves her. The, we all love being around her. She's, she's just a pro. And she works really hard. And she sets a really good example. And uh, she is one of the people you look to and say, she's a credit to the business. And that's what you always want to be able to say about someone, is that they're a credit to the business. She absolutely is. Shift the gears. I want to talk a little bit about this year's team. Um, but first, what should we do? Rate, review, and subscribe. Of course. How did we get this far without telling people? You know, I, I don't know. We should have done it at the top of the show. So if we hit rewind, we could start this thing all over again. We could insert that at the top. You want to do that? No, we have a meeting in nine minutes. Uh, oh, I know, but it's just a meeting. I mean, they come and go. <laughs> These are podcasts. These, they stay forever. <laughs> right? So, all right. Rate, review, subscribe, please. We, that's very nice of those of you do it. And uh, uh, thank you, because uh, those reviews are, mean a lot, and they're, they're helping us quite a bit. So thank you. Flip, last time we spoke, it was right before the deadline, the trade deadline. Now we are on the other side of the trade deadline. The Yankees, of course, as we know, did not make a move. Other teams like the Blue Jays made several moves. Um, what do you think? Will the quietness at the deadline hurt the Yankees? Well, I mean, time will tell. But but I think that at the time of the deadline, they looked at their needs. And their needs seem to be very much on the starting pitching side. Uh so, but, but you know what they didn't, if you go out and you trade for starting pitching, it's just going to cost you, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. It just is. And so the Yankees are reticent, I think, to want to do that. And I don't blame them. So, cause they have the answers. Maybe the answers are inside their own house. And that would be, you know, Garcia and that would be King and that would be Schmidt. So I think the Yankees are going to look there and use, use the talent that's there. Uh, and see that help. It's a great year to sort of do that. I know right now that they've got to win games to make the playoffs. And but these kids have a lot of talent, and uh, you've got to you got to think that the bullpen is going to write itself. So anything that might be lacking in terms of length from these starters, the bullpen might hope, hopefully can you know get them to the finish line. So you know their pitching is you know it's a, right now everything is a concern. Hitting, pitching, you know. Base running, I mean, field, I mean, you name it, it's a concern right now. So hopefully that, that you know, all it takes is a couple of wins and, and that concern will be behind them. And if you get in the playoffs, the Yankees are a very dangerous team. They just are. So anything can happen. We saw it happen with the Nationals last year. What a poor start they got off. So now they're out of it already this year. So anything can happen. 
And uh, I still think the Yankees have, will be in the playoffs, and I still think they're going to make a lot of noise in the playoffs. But right now they're struggling. There's no two ways about it. And I, if they could look forward and they had a crystal ball and could look forward, they would have said, oh, we need this, this, and this maybe to address, uh, to make sure that we get in the playoffs. But they didn't have a crystal ball. And at the time, things weren't going so badly for them as they are right now. But like I said, a week can change things. Right. And as you said, Davey Garcia is here. Clark Schmidt's here. Maybe in a week they'll get back some of the guys who are hurt. Uh, now you have a whole new team. You just have to make the tournament, as you've said several times in the past. That, that's really what it's this season. It's a tournament. Just get in a tournament. You got to have a seat at the table before you can, you know, raise your hand and make some trouble, right? They could cause a lot of trouble in the playoffs. They just got to get there. And I, I think they'll get there. But obviously, they've got to start winning games. If they don't, then they won't be there. See, there's your choices. You're either there or you're not, right? You're either <laughs> Win in or, or lose. Right. Who do you Sharp lose? left turn. That's, I got to take a, a quick sharp left turn real quick because I was watching Monday's game. Yes. And I want to talk about Paul O'Neill's memorabilia collection. Jo, a Joe DiMaggio bat. Are you kidding me? Isn't that great? Uh, I, I wrote, I, I actually sent him a text that said, I think it said Dom DiMaggio. It didn't really say Joe, did it? <laughs> no, it said Joe. It really said Joe. Uh, no, he's got, he's got quite a collection. It's a Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron and, and uh, Joe DiMaggio, I mean, he's got, he, he doesn't kid around, Paul. He goes for the all-time greats, doesn't he? And David Cohen's response was even better. He's like, yeah, I went out and bought a dozen. <laughs> <laughs> a dozen Joe DiMaggio balls. What, uh, before we land this plane, I see a lot of memorabilia behind you. What's your, what's your favorite memorabilia? Uh, well, I have a Babe Ruth autograph. So that's kind of special. I have an alimony check from Ty Cobb to one of his wives. I kid you oh, not because, well, because it's hard to get Ty Cobb's signature, right? So somebody had an alimony check and they put it into circulation and I, you know, I got it from a collector uh, and it was very, you know, it's been verified, looked at verified and it's legit. Uh, but uh, the, how many, Ty Cobb was, how many autographs exist? I mean, they didn't, they didn't sign baseballs or bats back in the day, right? Back then. So you know, they're usually pieces of paper or whatever. So it's hard to get anything, but I've got that. So that's a nice little piece of memory. So I've got Ruth and I've got, you know, uh, I've got Cobb. I have one piece of memory, one other piece of memory that I really like. It's the, it's signed by the the, uh, the six players involved in the three perfect games for the Yankees. You know, oh, very cool. That's a really, that's like, you know, Cohen and Girardi. It's like Wells and Posada. And it's like Don Larson and Yogi Berra. So it's a, it's a picture of them the last night of the old Yankee Stadium on the mound, and it's signed by each of them. And it's a it, it's probably my favorite piece of memorabilia, I would think. That photo is amazing, by the way. Isn't it? The six of them, it's so great. Yes, and you see how, how, how small Yogi is compared to the other guys. Yeah. Yogi's like 5'10", or 5'. Everybody else is, you know, the taller. You know, in some cases, 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's fun, so I think. When we uh, bring up alimony checks of Ty Cobb, that's probably when yeah. we should start landing the plane. What do you think? I think so. I think we've, we've said enough. The Yankees uh, looking ahead. The Yankees have to start winning games, as we talked about, obviously. And if they, they do, we'll be fine. If they don't, then, you know, uh, we'll look ahead to, to 21. But, uh, you know, uh, I still think, they, I still think they're going to make the playoffs, and I still think they're going to be trouble in the playoffs. So that's my summation there. So, all right, Kevin, for you and me, and for in the words of Ashley Figuezzi, it's time to land the plane. And Dan Besson, let's not forget Dan Besson does such a great job for us. We didn't mention him this week. There's your mention. That's two and three and four Dan Besson. No one, five Dan Besson. Six Dan Besson, seven Dan Besson. Or I'm, I'm sick of Dan Besson. We're going to land a plane. Let's go, baby. See you soon. Mm-hmm.